when thinking about how to introduce this podcast and our guest speaker, the first word that came to mind was, wow. We are so honored to have Lucy Kalanithi on our podcast. Lucy is an internist, and she is the widow of Paul Kalanithi. If you're listening to this podcast, you're most likely in the Between the Covers book club, and Paul Kalanithi is the author of our current book that we're diving into right now, When Breath Becomes Air. This book was shook up my world, honestly. I have not cried this hard in a book before, and we are so honored to have Lucy in our presence to learn from her and to learn how to be vulnerable and authentic in a time of devastation and suffering. We are so glad you're tuning into this podcast today. It is going to be an amazing ride. So buckle up and everybody, let's listen to Lucy Kalanithi. I'm I'm great. I'm taking a picture of the screen because it's just it's very funny to be in our closets. Oh my goodness. <sighs> that is hysterical. Yeah. Um this is what quarantine <laughs> has yeah. done. Oh, everybody I know, is it's crazy. I know. I live in Austin, Texas, and we have a lot of um, recording uh-huh. studios here, being the live music capital of the world, but they're all closed yeah, sure. for months, obviously, like yeah, everything. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm so thrilled that you're joining. And, like, just to be really honest, I am so nervous for a couple of reasons. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> One of those reasons is I watched your TED Talk, and mm-hmm. you are so poised and professional and just your presence is elevated and that just makes me a little nervous and two I just finished the book yesterday so I am Mm. very raw Mm. and Mm. open Mm -hmm. and still kind of crying about it like depending on yeah. my mood and so yeah. I was like oh my gosh I'm gonna be crying in front of Lucy <laughs> like who am I to cry in front of her I was kind of freaked out about it but I'm honored to have you thanks just thanks presence. for saying that thanks for yeah. saying that yeah, yeah thanks for having me it, it was it, thank you yeah I'm glad to be here yeah well you already my know closet. a little bit about in your closet I mean I would do just about anything to be at the same table as you having a cup of coffee or tea (laughs) and having this conversation in person but you know COVID-19 has different Mm -hmm. plans for us Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. where what city do you live in I live in San Mateo California that's Mm -hmm. what I, I thought so the first question we kind of always ask our guests or we will be asking our guests is how has reading or literature impacted your life? Oh, hey, what a cool question. Um, oh, I don't even know where to start. I mean, I think I can just sort of, I guess I'll just sort of start by saying, particularly when, go, when I'm going through a hard time, you know, after Paul died, I read a ton of poetry that I might not have expected that to happen. It's so amazing when um, someone else, someone else's very singular experience can feel so universal. Like if they explain it in a way that illuminates a truth of some kind. And, um, you know, just to give that example, after Paul died, I read all kinds of grief poetry and poetry about hardship or about brokenness or just whatever. And one of the poems that was really comforting was actually this Elizabethan poem of this statesman whose best friend had died. And he writes this like ode to his best friend in the 1600s or something. And it's just so evocative. And like for me as a, you know, like 20th, 21st or whatever century woman to then be finding this comfort. And it was just really amazing. I think it's just such a lovely personal way to connect to other people and their experiences, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, right? But 
I kind of think fiction is like in a way thinly veiled memoir, you know, like um, for, for whatever reason the author has chosen to write it. And I guess, you know, then in the book, Paul talks about how he felt ends up feeling like, like literature is a way to come at um, like moral philosophy in a way, you know, like right. illustrative about what it means to be a human being and what we owe to each other. And um, I don't know, to me, it's always felt like a way to gain empathy or connection. And I think it's funny because when I was younger, I was very intimidated by poetry. I thought I had to have some sort of like set of tools to be able to like understand it or say something smart about it or something. And then when Paul died and I really needed it, I would just come across certain poems and he would send me something. And then it would be the only thing, like this little crystalline thing that felt like a lifeline, you know, that another human being was able to say something about the way that I was feeling that made me feel better or at least not alone. Yeah. Similar to music. I, mm. I actually just me personally, I haven't been a big poetry reader for those reasons. I thought I needed to have, you know, the skill set or the toolkit to understand it or digest it. And when even you and your TED talk, when you talk about the poem of thread and even in the book, the poetry that Paul was drawn to definitely encourages me. And I know a lot of our other members to get a little uncomfortable and dive into other little tr literature that we might not be mm. comfortable with. Mm -hmm. So I right, or have this idea that you're not like, it's not for you or something. And I think I used to think about this with clothes. Like, did you ever watch that show? What not to wear? Yes. Yeah. You know how it's like all these women come onto the show and they think that something's wrong with their body because clothes don't fit them. And then like Stacy and Clinton end up saying like, no, 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 that's like the clothes are the clothes are the ones making the mistake. Like that's just not something that fits you. Yeah. And I don't know. It sort of feels like that. Like maybe it just wasn't made for you. So then, but it's not that you weren't made for it or something like there is something out there for you. Right. No, I love that analogy. And actually, um, so BTC as a whole, we vote on the book that we read and majority wins. So whatever book wins, mm. all 500 plus members read it all around the country. The reason for that is because I mainly hold a lot of the responsibilities of coming up with the discussion questions. And, you know, I can contribute to all of that as a whole. When Breath Becomes Air was in the book poll, I was like, I don't want to read this. This isn't my type of book. I'm not a doctor. We're about to go into a pandemic. And I don't know mm. if I want to read about. I didn't know much totally. about Paul. And totally. once again, just like we were talking about poetry, it pushed me mm. to read something mm. that might not have been my pick. And it was probably the most beautiful book I've ever read. And I'm just so thankful for BTC for pushing me to that, to do that. Me, and I yeah. know other members felt the same way, but I mean, Paul's writing and honestly, Lucy, most of the women I've talked to are really drawn to your writing mm. and they just, both of y'all have amazing um, thoughts and y'all write very graciously and we're excited for both of y'all's stories, not just Paul's, even Thanks. though Thank you. it was a great story to tell. So how is Katie like five? Five. Years? Five. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what, how do you see Paul and Katie now? Oh, um, in a lot of ways, I try not to make it so that I see him in too many ways. Cause I think that's sort of not fair to her either. You know, um, I mean, first of all, the way she looks, so she was eight months old when Paul died and so she was really little. Um, and then since then, it's been me and her. But then every time I look at her, I mean, she's darker than me. She's like little brown me. She actually looks. So Paul was Indian um, and Indian American. And um, uh, his parents were Im immigrants from India. And so Katie looks a lot like me as a child. But I was like pale and sunburny and had blonde hair. And Katie is brown and gets a deeper tan. and has you know like brownish black hair and big huge long eyelashes like the Kalanithi eyelashes so she looks like Paul and whenever I catch the two of us in a mirror you know like in a shop window or when we're brushing our teeth or something 
it always strikes me like, oh my gosh, we're such different colors. Um, and that's only because of Paul. And so that's kind of really nice, actually. Yeah, it's beautiful. Um, yeah. And then, um, you know, especially like when your partner is really different color from you, it just is so obvious that your children are a mix, you know? And I think, but that's true. I guess that's true for anybody, right? Like your children are always mixed. You can always see it, especially if you know, if you know each other. Um, and then she is not a pleaser. <laughs> and Paul wasn't a pleaser either. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's yes. like, she's fine pushing stuff. Like for me to be disappointed in her, like if my mom was disappointed in me, I would, and, you know, gave me like the disappointed face, just be devastated literally for weeks. And Katie's not, you know, she's very headstrong and she's, it's like a whole parenting toolbox that's totally unavailable to me that I thought would be available to me. <laughs> but Paul was like that too. Like if he didn't want to do something, like he was the type of person who like wrote letters to the editor in high school of the high school newspaper about how the English teacher was like insufficient or something just like stuff where you're like that's just obnoxious like you just don't that's just just, you know you just don't do that and I feel like Katie's sort of a kindergarten version of that although um you know and then I so but I, I actually kind of like that especially for a girl because I think the types of things that might make you a headstrong child probably like have a chance at making you a like strong adult woman, you know? So I have to remind myself of that. What does Katie know about Paul? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so she knows a lot um, because we talk about him a lot. We have pictures of him in our house and then she, um, you know, we're really close with his family. So She's the grandchild of his parents. They're like super involved grandparents, aunts and uncles. Like during the pandemic right now, actually, Paul's older brother and his older brother's wife moved in with us. Like they live in San Francisco and they came to stay with us to help with childcare and everything. So it's just like the families are very intermingled and always will be. Um, But then she just knows, like she just asks about him or knows things about him. And I'll just point out ways that they're similar. Everything from like they both like reading to they both like taking really hot showers to, I mean, just whatever little details I try to just kind of sprinkle in. And then, um, and then she just says interesting things about like, we go to his grave. And so that's just sort of part of her growing up, you know? Um, and, and then she just says things that are really interesting. Like, um, this was a while ago, but, um, and I shared it on a podcast called Meditative Story. Um, so I sort of told a story around this idea of her um, sort of like growing up into this kind of unusual knowledge about loss um, and how for her it's just kind of normal. But we had this interesting conversation where um, she said something that made me think a lot where um, she had found this little bell in our house that was, um, it was like a wedding favor when we got married. It was this sort of like little golden Indian bell that all our wedding guests were given in this kind of like, thank you, thank you gift. And so she found this bell in our house and I said, oh, that's from my wedding with daddy. Um, That was for for the party. And she said, was I at the wedding with daddy? And I said, no, 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 you weren't even born yet. Um, You weren't even born. And she said, oh, so I was a baby in your tummy. And I said, no, no, you weren't even there yet. You weren't even a baby in my tummy. And she said, oh, that's because that's because that's when I was dead. And it was like this really interesting, isn't that like kind of interesting? So interesting. You know, like now my dad's not here. So, and then before I wasn't here and it's like the same to her, it just seemed like the same oh, thing. Okay. Yeah. You know, and so there are things like that where she'll say things that make me reflect on the whole situation. Like I, it's not like I hold all the knowledge about it, and then she, and then I'm figuring out how to dole it out. It's sort of like she's she's figuring it out on her own. <laughs> yeah, no, I love that, and I think mm. that's one of the great ways to grow is to have her figure mm-hmm. it out on her mm-hmm. own, right? And it's like kids are like that, right? It's like kids just say stuff. It's like the kids say the darndest thing. Like they're smart. They're weird. And like 
intuitive and smart. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that. So bring me back to when Paul told you he wanted to write a book. Like, were you like, Mm. uh, okay, did you think Mm. it was going to be this book that helped millions of people Mm -hmm. grapple with the question of what life is about and help people go through loss? Yeah. Um, I mean, I certainly didn't picture that it would be so widely read in the way that it was. Like, it's been really wild. It's in 40 languages and it was on the New York Times list for a year. I mean, just like unbelievable in a heartbreaking way, right? Because Paul didn't see it. It's really, um, it's like really wonderful and terrible. Um, and I mean, the thing, so when we started medical school, you know, he talked, Paul talks in the book about how he had thought about being maybe a philosopher or a writer or literature professor or whatever. And yeah. then he goes to medicine to think about bioethics and identity and stuff and to, to, to wrestle with moral questions in a practical sense. And, um, and, but you could tell initially in medical school that he had sort of like a literary streak, you know, um, that was true all the time. And he, all of his emails were really, like wry and like he never wrote a boring email he always had some like turn of phrase or joke or like insight or it's just like he was really really like you know a keen observer and a and a literary person but then the it's it sort of came out you know i don't know if anybody in the group saw the new york times essay that paul wrote but there's a piece of the it's now actually a part of the book but it's this section um you know he wrote an essay that ended up in the new york times called how long have i got left that went viral at the time when he had just gotten sick and it was about being a resident who then becomes sick and um he sort of wrote it as an essay he wrote on an airplane actually he was going to some kind of conference he was sick but he was going to a conference and then um and he sent it to a friend and said oh do you think i could publish this somewhere about my experience and then um his best friend was like, it's not that great an essay and it's, you're trying to say three things at once and it's not very funny. And like you buried the lead on it and like, it's uh, maybe. And then another friend was like, I forwarded this to the op-ed desk at the New York times. And he'd sent it to these two friends. And then a month later, the New York times published it. And so that was that. And then um, that was when he got solicitations from agents and editors to see if he would want to write more. And he definitely did want to write more, but at the time was also trying to finish residency even while sick and then became quickly sick enough within a year that he couldn't be a surgeon. And so the thing, like the, when you ask that question about what was it like when he was deciding to write the book, it felt like such a godsend because, you know, like, being sick or becoming disabled, it's like your whole identity can go up in flames kind of, and you have to start over in certain ways to figure out who you are and what you're about and what you can still have. And um, so then this chance to be a writer and to actually sort of like really truly have this other different dream come true. I mean, it was just wild. And then it was kind of like, he really was able to sustain a sense of feeling a purpose and, and, I don't know what it would have been like without that. Cause during that time, during that last year that he was alive, we had a baby and then he was working on this book. And so really things were like growing in our house. Like all these things were pulling, pulling him into the future while at the same time he understood that he wasn't going to be there for the, that future, but somehow it also was still his future and he was still participating and he was really present in it. Um, it's very strange, but it also was, so good one of my favorite i loved a lot of the book but i in your epilogue when you talk about how you love who paul was that last year that he was Mm -hmm. frail but never weak and i was just like tears were running down my face like oh my gosh and i love you madison (laughs) i could almost envision it in a way of Paul sitting in his chair, weak, but I mean frail, but not weak, mm-hmm. stronger. So sort of this like, fortitude somehow. Yeah, mm-hmm. like he. Yeah, he almost felt comfortable and brave, and like what was about to happen. And let's be honest, I 
I haven't read a lot of stories or know a lot of people that handle suffering the way you and Paul have. And that's my, my next question. When starting BTC, I knew that it would be very fun and there would be a lot of amazing things that came out of it, like friendship and vulnerability and women holding hands through hard times and good times. But I don't think I was prepared. And I I don't want to make this question about me, but we have a lot of devastating Mm -hmm. news that's happening in a lot of women's lives. Just because of life, you mean? Right. Just because of life. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard to give advice Mm. on how to handle grief Mm -hmm. when personally Mm -hmm. I haven't Mm -hmm. handled grief like Mm -hmm. you have or a lot of the members have. Mm -hmm. So what would you say to them, people that like are in the midst of grieving somebody, Mm -hmm. leaving? Well, yeah. Um. You're saying like, how do you figure out how to talk to somebody or what to do for them? Um, so there's a couple people who I think like speak really well about this and have written well about this. And one is Nora McInerney uh, and the other one's Kelsey Crow. And they both, I don't know, in multiple articles or in books have talked about what not to say um, that I think is really helpful. Um, and then I wrote a piece on my sister's blog. My sister, have you, do you see the um, blog Cup of Joe? Or you might have other people yeah. who read Cup of Joe. So that's my sister. And I wrote a piece for her. She did an interview with me about what to write in a condolence card. And I had to, you know, like, it's true. Once it's happened to you, you realize like the most sort of important thing that I think I do see over and over. And I think is like, other people trying to do sense making for you when you're going through a hard time, you know, like he's in a better place or everything happens for a reason or, you know, whatever is like, it doesn't feel helpful to most people. Right. It feels like it feels isolating somehow, like if a, for any number of reasons. Right. But I think just having someone with you is the biggest thing to just see you and say, you know, I had got a condolence card that said something like, like, this is so shitty and we love you. And that was the only thing it said, or it just, you know, something like that. And I was just like, oh, that feels so good. I love it. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I, um, those are some of the things that were the most helpful, um, was just to feel seen and to also have people sort of treat me in a way, the way they like always would. You know, like I was still me, Paul was still Paul, like the people who would just come over and like sometimes just talk about football or like make fun of Paul, you know, he wasn't some like other figure who was just like only shadowy or only vulnerable or just whatever. Um, And then I think it's like, even if you think you're not going to see this perfect thing, like merely showing up and like, um, you know, instead of like driving by and wondering like, should you knock or should you whatever? it's just like, it is so much appreciated. And I think sometimes like, even if you just say like, I really wish I knew what to say and I don't, but I've been thinking of you so much and I just wanted to see you and I'm here, you know, it's just like, really, it doesn't have to be perfect. You can just sort of describe, my mom used to say, when in doubt, describe, like if you're going through a hard time in a relationship or you have an apology to say, you're not like quite sure the perfect words. It actually, you could just describe that you don't know the perfect words, but conversation, like you started it by being like, I'm nervous for these few reasons. You weren't just like, hello, I'm Madison. (laughs) It's like, it actually is like so inviting. And then it makes you want to be with the person. You know, I don't know. I sort of think that. And then I think one other thing that I've seen people have a hard time with is when someone says, let me know if there's anything I can do for you. When you're the person going through the hard time, it's actually hard to like triage or think about what that would be. And I have a friend whose baby was ultra sick in the hospital. This is actually funny because he works at Facebook and he, Cheryl Sandberg ended up writing about this in her book when she wrote option B because he told her this story. So this, they had their son who was really sick in the hospital and another friend showed another friend texted him while they were in the baby's hospital room and said, uh, 
I'll be in the hospital lobby in half an hour with a burger for you. Do you want pickles on it or not? And that is just like the kind of question that you can answer. You know, I'd love to babysit your kids weekly for the next little while. Would that work? Is there a day that's best for you? You know, like just that kind of thing. Um, No pressure. And I also think that like no pressure to respond is really nice. It's like, hey, I'm thinking of you. How are you? I'd love to talk about that or about nothing. No pressure to respond. Love you. You know, right. so anyway. No, I love that. Oh, yeah. Big fan of, big fan of yeah. Brene between empathy and uh-huh. silver lining. And uh-huh. it's amazing. Uh-huh. It's amazing. It's so good. Oh, it's so good. And it's changed my outlook on how to respond to people that are in a hole and not to be dipping my head down in the hole and saying like, oh, how are you doing down there? Like, it's right. great. Like, oh, you're over there. Yeah. Right. Like going down in the hole with them and just saying, Hey, I'm here for you. If you need, you know, and maybe that's like the literature thing, right? Like people are like, Oh, but like, how could I be expected to relate? And it's like, no, if you have curiosity about what it's like for the other person to be going through the thing, then like you fit, like, you know, what about you personally? What are some things that helped you go through grief Mm. and heal Mm. the best you could? I mean, I think one was just the idea that there wasn't some kind of timeline or expectation um, that, and sometimes it was like, wasn't even clear to me what I was going to need until the exact moment. Like six months, I like wore my wedding ring and I was like, well, I'm going to just wear my wedding ring till it's time to not, but Maybe I'll wear it forever, or maybe I'll put it on the other hand, or maybe I just, I don't know, like, throw it in a lake. Like, I just, like, literally had no idea what was going to happen. I wore it, wore it, wore it, it felt good to wear it. And then, like, six months after Paul died, I took it off to go swimming. Um, and then was like, I don't think I need to put it back on. And then didn't. Um, and I've heard, I don't know, something about, like, letting myself understand that that was fine. Like there's all these other emotions upon emotions, right? Like, like I, a lot of people I know who ha- have grieved someone like feel guilty when they start to have fun or feel good. Um, like it somehow yes. means that they're not missing the person or, you know, they're not doing what they're supposed to do. And I feel like that's an example, right. Of like, it is okay to have any of those feelings and to feel better. You know, I don't feel like nearly as sad as I did about Paul dying anymore, but I also like love Paul just the same. Like the the amount I love Paul is exactly the same. And I don't know. I think I, I just wouldn't have known what to expect. And I had friends who kind of encouraged me, like all of it is okay. It's really helpful. You know, I love how you just kind of, I don't know the best way to say it. You didn't make yourself make decisions. You were almost just when they came and maybe you, you got out of the lake and you just didn't want to put it on then. And that was that instead of making it, Oh, I need to decide today. You just let your right. feelings roll. Right. Or like if some of it is just like not doing what other people, what sort of you would expect, you know, like, what other people might expect of you. There's a lot around like dating after somebody dies, you know, I don't know quite what the expectations are, but I don't know. I can't, I literally can't put even my finger on that because I don't know what they exactly are. Maybe I just decided to forget. So, but anyway, all that kind of stuff, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, no, that, that's really helpful. I, I know a lot of women in our group is going through loss like this and so did you pick up any practices like exercise or yoga anything I know personally when tragedy happened in my life um I was very laying in my bed dealing with my feelings and I found relief by some practices I implemented I just wanted to know if you implemented any what were yours Um, so mine was working out. I definitely started getting a little actually addicted to Mm. 
fitness because it was my only outlet that I felt okay and that I could control. Now I'm trying to find a middle. Uh-huh. Totally. Um yeah, I the two those two things have been really important to me too. Like as a doctor too, I'm just like meditation changes your brain for the better and exercise is like incredibly good for everything to do with you and your body and your like mental well-being, right? So I think to meditation, mindfulness meditation and exercise are really big, making sure you're getting enough sleep. Um, oh, that's a good one. And actually the interesting thing for me is that uh, in 2010, which was five years before Paul got sick. No, no, no. Five years before Paul died. Yeah. A few years before Paul got sick. I went through an episode of depression when I was a medical resident training. And, um, and during that time, like got linked with a really good therapist and started doing meditation, like not even that often, like 10 minutes every other day or something. I mean, like <laughs> quite relatively minimal, but an amount that it actually really does change the way you look at things. And um, so with some of those skills, particularly meditation, ha- like I had to develop a few years before Paul got sick. And I think they actually prepared me to cope with Paul being sick. No, that's really interesting. Yeah, meditation's hard for me. Um, I try and take a breather every, you know, every day, at least in the morning. Mm-hmm. But man, that is a hard practice to get comfortable with. You mean because you find that your mind wanders? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Although, you know what? Like, I, I keep telling myself, I'm like, every time you notice that your mind wanders, it means you are getting better at it. It means you noticed. <laughs> Right. Exactly. It doesn't mean you're bad at it. It means you're, it means you're good at it. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever taken the Enneagram test? No, I know what it is. I haven't. Oh, I would love to know what your number is. Mm-hmm. I'm a, I'm a one, which is mm-hmm. the perfectionist. So my brain is always, ah, if I can't mm. be perfect at something, I kind of just like move Forget on it. and try. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's how uh-huh. I, I fight meditation because ah. I'm not perfect at it. Mm. instead of just accepting that this is the wave I'm riding and this is how I'm feeling and that this is all okay. I don't have right? to be perfect. It's like literally part this. of it. I feel right. like when I first started, like the biggest difference it made for me was like, I think I used to label experiences or like myself with like more judgmental words. You know how part of it is like non-judgment. I feel like that's what you're talking about. Yes. Like not just like, I'm bad at this. It's just like, you know, my mind is wandering more than normal. <laughs> or just, I don't know, literally whatever you would say. I have no idea. But I feel like I used to, in a hard situation, have a thought like, this is such a nightmare. This is a nightmare. And now I yeah. think I'd be more apt to say, this is very painful. This is a difficult situation. This is really I... hard for me. You know, instead of like, like the other layer of like, this is horrible. I'm horrible. It, I feel like it made that layer go away. And somehow human beings are like built to have that layer. Like I had that layer for like 35 years, you know? Oh my gosh. I love that. Yeah. I don't know. It sort of helped with self-compassion and, you know, um, too. I mean, I'm not perfect. At it. It's like, it just makes me like now notice, like if I have those thoughts, I'm like, those are thoughts. They're like not necessarily the truth. Like the idea that your thoughts are not always the truth is like such a revelation. Like surprise. Like it's like life changing. You know? No, that's so good. So my next question for you is how did like Paul being in your life and Paul's story change the way you, doctor, I mean everyone listening. She is Dr. Lucy Kalamathy. So how, did, how is your patient relationship different because of Paul? Hmm. Um, I mean, I guess there's two big answers. One is like becoming a doctor alongside Paul becoming a doctor. We just had a lot of conversations about what it feels like and what it means. And obviously Paul saw it as such a moral mission that I'm sure that influenced me a lot. Um, even now, you know, like even during COVID, it's like, it's like, I am part of COVID clinic. Like I am seeing COVID patients at Stanford and, um, 
and it feels so purposeful. Like there's sort of like a moral backbone to it, you know, and like trying to figure out how to like people who have COVID, even if they feel okay, are like scared. And then they sort of, this is such an aside, but I've been thinking about this. So I'm just going to mention it. Like when the patients come into our clinic and COVID clinic, we're wearing full PPE, right? So we have like a gown, a mask, eye shield, right. a bouffant, surgical cap. And you just like the whole outfit says like, I do not want to be in this room with you, <laughs> you know? But then it's a person who's sitting there who's like scared and then also feels scary um, because they're scary to other people. They have this disease. And so, and they're contagious for a while. And so we've been doing this project in our clinic where we're printing out these like four by five inch sticky labels with a picture of our face on them, like a smiling picture. And then we put it yes. on our chest, on the gown. Maybe you've seen those like in on Twitter or around. And it's so nice. And like, there's literally no reason to go through all the effort to like take the picture, print it out, like put it on, make sure it's like, we have enough labels by the printer. It's like the only reason to do it is because human being is there and you're a human being too so like and like we need to see each other's faces during a hard time you know and you want to smile at your patient and you can't they can't see you even though you're there and so i don't know it's like everything sort of i think paul because he thought so deeply about morality i think i see the actions that i take and they have like a moral weightiness that I think is there because Paul like named it so explicitly over and over and over, including in his writing. Um, like not in an annoying way, just in a way where it was like, even the tiniest thing, like being on hold with an insurance company so you can fight for your patient's MRI and you're kind of like pissed off, like actually is not just like an administrative task. It's like gift of love to your patient, right? To like wait on hold. Feels like it has a, like a, 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 like there's a North Star to it that is like very clear uh, all the time. So that's one thing, I guess, just in terms of my own experience. And then, and then Paul having been a patient and me spending time being with Paul as a patient right. reflects in my own practice too, because I'm so much more attuned to the other family members who are there and what all of what they're giving to the medical system with like their work and their knowledge and their advocacy and the day-to-day implementation of whatever it is we decide to do for the treatment. And, um, and then I just have such a clear sense that whether or not it's something like you're dying or like you are wondering if you need an antibiotic for your cough because you have to give a big talk at work tomorrow and like you have to be on point for your thing it's like it's just like nobody goes to the doctor without thinking without some idea of like what they need and who they are and like no matter it doesn't matter what it is like um you know so i think a lot about how to like how my job isn't just sciency it's it's like very related to like real people love and hope love. Yeah. Oh yeah totally right yeah i love how y'all put y'all's photos on the medical so nice, gown. Right? i think that's amazing and it's like rings for smiles like so i love it i i think it mm-hmm. makes the biggest difference i know if mm-hmm. i was a patient i would be scared with doctors walking in the room like oh, that like shielded up like an alien yeah yeah I just think that's so vulnerable of y'all to say, like, I'm here. This is what I look like. This is my smile. And I'm going to treat you the best way possible. Like, let's get through this together. Mm-hmm. And I, that's really um, amazing. One, uh, I mean, I keep saying one of my favorite parts, but it's all amazing. The whole book is amazing. But um, Paul's bravery throughout the book is extremely inspiring. but your bravery was very motivating and selfless it as a woman and a wife i found it i just was really touched how you handled the whole entire situation 
so selfless. And I tried to put myself in your shoes if I was going through the same thing. And you answer in the epilogue and even in the prior pages that Paul was writing, your answers are so loving and caring and about Paul. They're never about you. And one of my favorite ones is in your epilogue when Paul says, this might be how it ends. And you say, I'm here for you. Not, I'm going to miss you. Or you said, I'm here for you. And I just thought that was Mm. so beautiful to have Paul have you in those moments. And one of my questions was, you gave the whole story about all the beds that y'all had slept in from, you know, residency to having Katie to now you're in the bed with him in his last moments. I picture me in the situation and I would not be present. I would be freaking out. Mm. I'd be so I would not be grounded. I don't know how you did it so selfless, but how did you stay present in that moment and just be with Paul? Um, also, you don't know. You don't know. You might be. You don't know. Um, yeah. I wouldn't have I'd be. Um, yeah. I mean, I think a hard question to answer. I think some of it is just that when someone is that sick there's literally like only that moment like you know that there's not more moments and yet somehow like the entire past is there with you too i think that's the thing with the beds like you're just like i'm in this bed and there was this bed and there was this bed and like this is who we are and now we're here and there's like this is just like it's like the idea of like your life flashing before in your eyes i think there's something to that it's like in a moment that is so heightened you feel like some sort of like blazing version of yourself, you know, I think, but also like not to minimize it. Our marriage was like very on the rock before, right before Paul got diagnosed. And it's like, I wasn't selfless. And I sort of don't think it's like you, like you shouldn't be selfless in marriage, right? It's like, there's two people. And I think that was part of the thing is like, we were trying so hard to figure out this work-life balance thing. And I was so worried that we wanted really different things. And then we had gotten into like, you know, I think it's like the kiss of death if you start resenting each other, right? Like, you know, John Gottman, like the relationship, the the love yeah. lab or whatever, like the Gottman, yeah. Yes. And um, he talks about how he thinks he can like predict who will get divorced and it comes down to eye rolling. He's like, it's like disgust, like disgust yeah, like, resentment, like the kiss of death. He- yeah, he can meet a couple, and in fifteen minutes, yeah, he can, like, say, can say if I they're going to stay together. Bunked or something, but like I don't know. It's it really resonated with me ultimately because I think we had almost gotten to this point of like we couldn't see the other person's needs, and then you're like, well, I'm not getting my needs met, and blah blah blah, and then and then right in the middle of it, Paul got diagnosed with terminal cancer, which is like such a lightning bolt. Just so like it wasn't even that it was clarifying. It just did a few things. It was like suddenly I think we just gave each other the benefit of the doubt right away. Like suddenly all of that just came back. Like, oh my gosh, like, what do you need? What do you need? What do you need? Like, you know, I just, he was doing it to me too. It wasn't like, it was only all about him. Like I felt really, really seen, especially all of it. Like this decision to have a baby. Like we certainly weren't going to do any of that without me. Like it was, I, we've, we really like noticed each other. big time because you just had to in every level. And then I also think it is a little bit cliched, but it's like love just gets so big that it fills in all the cracks, you know, like it's, it just felt like there's literally nothing else other than how much, like how much you need each other or you know, like how, like the sense of how much you will miss somebody like reflects back into the present moment that 
they are here right now, you know, it just makes it seem so, it makes it seem so obvious. So, um, and then also at the same time, sometimes it's just really overwhelming and, um, you know, I don't know. I think some of it was just luck. Like it happened to shake out that way. Um, I did see something, although to the selflessness part, do you want to hear the craziest statistic? So I, it's like, this was, on, maybe this was on Reddit or something, but it was this thing. I think someone did a study, literally, I think there's a study on this where um, if something like one partner gets diagnosed with terminal cancer and like, what's the rate of people splitting up? And <laughs> this is insane. So over the, or over that same time period, like roughly 10% of couples would have gotten, would have split up or gotten divorced. But if the man gets diagnosed with terminal cancer, only 3% split up instead of 10%. And if the woman gets diagnosed wow. with terminal cancer, it's 20, 20%. Uh-huh. Isn't that insane? Wow. And so apparently it's like, well, why? Like, is it like women are more selfless or is it that women can handle harder things or like, like women are less likely to date somebody in the first year. It's like, a whole bunch of men are remarried at one year and women, it takes longer, same, but like younger widows, older widows, everybody. And I'm like, maybe that's like cultural expectation, but maybe it's just like women can handle stuff or like women, like women have so much intimacy, like in our female friendships, right. Or like BTC or whatever. It's just like, we have like this huge center of gravity that I think maybe men don't have. And so I don't know, there's just gendered stuff to all of it. And so anyway, I just, I'm throwing that in there because it's all like in this like soup, right? Um, but I no, think- I, I love it. I also think women have a different, I don't know how to say it because men have resilience too, don't get me wrong. But- I just think women, more women have a different type of resilience in situations than men do. And I, I, I haven't put my finger on it, but just being in BTC and hearing what women are going through. And I can't even imagine, I can't even imagine some of the things that these women are going through, but yet they do it with so much grace and love and kindness and they're giving back. And I'm like, why are you giving back? We need to be giving to you. And I just think a woman's heart has a stronger like resilience at time. You know, there's something where sometimes I'm just like, oh my gosh, I'm like, I feel so lucky to be a woman. <laughs> like, you know, and in some ways so, don't like both. Right. But it's like, there's something very special that we all, that I feel like we're getting or giving or capable of. No, I love talking to you, Lucy. Like I want to be your friend. <laughs> I will I will get on Twitter more and tweet even though I literally have one just for all of our listeners I literally created a Twitter to get in contact with Lucy <laughs> and she actually responded back so um you're awesome all of our listeners want to know are you going to write a book Oh yeah so um definitely not I really don't like writing I really don't like writing um but well, so two things. Um, I'm working on actually starting a podcast, and the working title is Gravity, and it's basically, um, and I'm like in like contract negotiations with this brilliant media network um, of women, actually. And anyway, it's getting sorted out. But I'm working on that, and I the podcast is basically going to be interviews but then also like narrative and reflection and some literature poetry about hardship specifically but like it's like this is i'm trying to make this sound like not boring and not depressing essentially like narrative uh, narratives of hardship where it's like an individual story of hardship potentially but then also like what's the cultural story around that thing whether it's like loneliness um like one of the surgeon generals Vivek Murthy um, took on loneliness as his like surgeon general project instead of smoking or obesity or opioids or whatever. He was just like, it's all loneliness. Like the answer is loneliness. So I'm actually just going to think about that. And, um, or like the question of climate change, like climate change is like 
same deal, not just a sciencey problem, but it's like a like social psychology problem, a justice problem, like a power um, structure problem. And so like who's thinking about that in a way where the actual narrative matters. Um, and I think in particular, when there's a hardship that is stigmatized, the like the cultural story around the hardship can hurt people even in addition to just the hardship itself, right? So I sort of want to like take that apart and talk with people who are going through something or thinking about something. So it's, it's like stories with them, but also like a sort of like intellectual piece of it, but really soulful at the same time. So anyway, obviously I have to work on my elevator pitch, but it's, I'm putting together this team of people who I think have, have a really beautiful sensibility about being able to talk about that. And then the COVID moment is like, oh my gosh, like how does this, how does this suddenly fit or not fit or like whatever? So anyway, working on this thing called gravity. How, and then how can we, is it out? How do we get in the loop? For all of oh, I'll, just, are like, I'll, like, I'll write to you. It's not in the loop. It's going to take, it's like not, um, it's just starting. So I've done one interview. Actually, that's not true. So I've done one interview with a man with ALS and his wife. It actually, I, I put a, an excerpt of it is in the Washington Post because after I did the interview, I like wrote it up and they printed a piece of it. His name's Adi Barkin. So you can find this interview with Adi Barkin. And he talks about the serenity prayer and like how he reformulated it as an activist. He's an activist, but then he got ALS and is now totally paralyzed. Oh and he used to be all about resistance. And then he had to be all about acceptance when he got sick. And then like, how do you do that? And then um, I want to do one episode that's old tape of Paul. And then I kind of want to mix it with my voice now. So it's sort of like I'm talking to Paul, but like, oh my gosh, I'm trying to figure out if that would even work or if that would just be like creepy. <laughs> so, you know, it's just like, that's why, that's why. But anyway, bottom line, I really like talking and I really, I never thought as a doctor that I would, um, want to be part of like an intellectual conversation or a media media world but it turns out i think it's like oh this kind of conversation that you're starting and that people are having about life um i love being part of it it's really fun and yeah. um, no, you're definitely making an impact on i mean paul's story made an impact but it's almost like you get to carry on the totally the legacy and right. that's just so amazing so um yeah let me know when gravity comes out all of I our will. we have five 500 women that would love to support you and they really do just adore you they can't believe you're on the podcast and they were so it's excited so. thank you it's totally so, made my day thank you I, we are so glad to have you let us know how we can help once gravity launches we can all post and share it on Instagram. And cool, I think every, everyone needs to hear the talks that you're going to be having on gravity. And so what better way to just put some positivity on social media? <laughs> yeah. Thanks for joining Thank us. You so much. Thanks. All right. Yeah. Have a good Bye. one. Stay safe. Tell everybody. Yeah. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye. Bye. You're welcome. Bye. Bye.